Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks to all of you out there for being with us today. Just a quick comment. I got to say, the media business is a cruel business. Chris Licht, chairman and CEO of CNN for just one year, is already out. And I mentioned it on this show because so many people in Atlanta take a particular pride in CNN as a homegrown product. Um, But that's a media story that is going to continue to get an enormous amount of attention as he tried to change the culture of CNN um, and, of course, came under fire for the town meeting uh, with Donald Trump, which gave Donald Trump a platform to uh, uh, just rage against the uh, a fake election that denied him the presidency and so many other things. So, so long to Chris Licht. I know there are an awful lot of CNNers who are not sorry to see him go. But we're not going to talk about that on the show today. We've got more uh, Georgia-oriented things to discuss with our panel so let me introduce him and get started. Greg Bluestein is with me, as he is every Wednesday, AJC political reporter, commentator for the uh, NBC platforms, including MSNBC. Greg, thanks for being here today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, your household is quiet. Your kids are off at camp. Congratulations. We're temporary empty nesters, and we're getting used to it. It's so far, three nights, and it's been great. <laughs> <laughs> we're also joined today by Kendra King-Mammon, a political science professor at Oglethorpe University. But Kendra, we have to congratulate you. You have now been named um, uh, to a much uh, uh, more significant uh, post. You are now provost at Oglethorpe University. Congratulations. That's a big job, Kendra. Well, thank you. Let me say that it is interim uh, provost. Uh, we had some shifts um, in our administration. So my boss is now interim president, Dr. Catherine McClyman. Shout out to her. And uh, we're just excited about what we're going to do this year. Um, and uh, glad to be on with you. And Bill, thanks for the promotion. <laughs> well, we look forward to watching how things unfold uh, under the uh, uh, tenure that you and your interim president uh, have. Melita Easters is back with us. Melita, founder and executive director of the Georgia Win List, an organization which identifies Democratic women who are pro-choice to run, particularly for legislative offices. Hello, Melita. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to have you here. And Eric Tannenblatt is back as well. You all know that Eric Tannenblatt is one of the state's best-known political insiders, Republican insiders, mainstream Republican insiders, we now have to say. Uh, He was chief of staff during the first term of Governor Sonny Perdue. He has worked with every Republican presidential candidate going back to uh, George H.W. Bush coming forward uh, to all the way to Mitt Romney. Um, Eric, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. We should also say that your current job is, is global uh, head of uh, government relations for uh, 
the law firm Denton. Yes, thanks for having me. Glad to be back. So, all right, I I thought that we would start with a story about what's brewing for the state Republican convention this weekend. But Melita Easters, uh, just before we went on the air, gave us news that has not, to the best of my knowledge, been reported anywhere else. It relates to uh, the vote in city council the other night, the contentious vote on the Atlanta Police Training Center. Um, and so, Melita, I'm going to start off with you because I think this is an enormous development um, in the story. And if you don't mind, I'll set the stage briefly, and then you can tell us how it pertains to uh, the city of Atlanta and the Atlanta Training Center. I think most of our listeners will recall a story that we followed for a long time, and that was the um, people in Camden County, the leadership that wanted to put a spaceport in the county. It was a very divisive and controversial issue um, to the extent that uh, citizens there uh, had a referendum in which they overwhelmingly said they do not want the spaceport located in Camden County. County commissioners ignored them, proceeded with their plans to build the center or to at least pave the way for the building of the center, And the case went all the way to the state Supreme Court. And the state Supreme Court said, as a matter of fact, a referendum of voters trumps uh, what the county commission wants to do. It was a precedent-setting ruling. Tell us now why this is um, important in terms of what's happening with the Atlanta Police Training Center. Well, about the time we wrap up this program at 10 a.m., some of the attorneys who are associated with the police center training center protests are having a press conference to announce that they will file for a petition allowing them to begin collecting signatures to call for a referendum on the contract for the police training facility and by law the city has a brief window to approve this petition and then they would have a 60-day window to collect signatures from 15% of Atlanta's total registered voters at the time of the last election. Of course, they'll try to get a cushion. Then the city has a 50-day window to debate signatures, and then the referendum goes on the next citywide ballot. These attorneys hope that would be the school board election scheduled in the city this fall. Um, Greg, that's a, a quite a development. You wrote about what about the state Supreme Court decision in the Camden County case, and at the time, I think you wrote it could establish a precedent for just this sort of action. Citizens of a particular municipality uh, saying no to their uh, county commissions, to their city councils, whatever. Exactly. This, this seemed like a bigger decision. <laughs> Uh, then that expanded far beyond the implications of the state uh, of the Camden County Spaceport. At the time, it was delivered way back in February. Uh, the court had a unanimous opinion at the time, um, but even two dissent, uh, even two concurring justices warned that um, it could be uh, it could lead to a wave of new citizen back efforts to overturn a sweep of decisions made by local officials, even as minute as a uh, you know millage rate increases and and kind of kind of mundane decisions. This is not a mundane decision by any means, but they were worried that it could just lead to all sorts of um, criticism 
criticism and 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 rollbacks of of just you know your regulatory issues and things like this. Uh, there is some legal question. I I wrote but way back when that it was uncertain whether it would it apply to municipalities as well because that ruling involved the county and not a municipality. Um, so. Uh, uh, state and legislative officials were reviewing that court's decision at the time uh, worried about that <clears throat> but uh, justice charlie charles bethel outlined a scenario that could unfold if legislators don't take action he wrote how hard will it be to collect signatures or a petition to repeal the adoption of a resolution increasing or merely setting the millage rate so um, this ruling still has a lot of implications and we could see we could be seeing one of them right now Eric, we should be cautious about this. Uh, you've been in politics a long time. You know how difficult it can be to collect signatures for on a petition. Oh yeah, it'd be very difficult, especially given the time frame that Melita described. But um, I think the precedent that this would set too uh, for you know <laughs> issues across the state is something to to watch. So it's going to be interesting the next few days how this folds out and see what unfolds and. To also see the reaction uh, from city officials uh, once this press conference takes place, Kendra, um, if, if you're more than welcome to comment on on that next step by the protesters, but I'd like to add a, a layer to this as well. Um, what we have also learned about the vote the other, you know, it was such a chaotic not overnight at Atlanta City Council. I mean, they didn't vote until 5.30 in the morning or 14 hours of public comment. Um, and so it takes a while to clear the air and see what really happened. And it is interesting that in approving the city share of the funding, $30 million up front plus another 30 plus million over the next 30 years in terms of a leaseback arrangement, um, the council did add some amendments. Um, one of them was that the training center would have to have de-escalation and anti-bias training. Um, another was that helicopters and explosives would not be um, permitted on the site. Um, and then they talked about, they also added an amendment that would um, expand uh, forest around the center and limit the number of acres the center itself could use. So. It, it appears that to some extent, even though they approved this measure 11 to 4, council members to some extent, I think we're hearing some of what protesters were concerned about. Absolutely. And I, th I think we have to go back quickly to 2020, right? The activism that we've seen in our city over the last three plus years um, has been ongoing, right? It goes back even to the 1960s, Atlanta being one of the homes of the civil rights movement activism. So this is not something that we're new to in Atlanta. We're true to it in Atlanta. And I do believe that the council members heard the protesters. I think what we have to watch right now is the degree to which the protesters want to hear what the city council leadership is doing to try to come somewhat in the middle. Um, there's lots of money behind this. I do believe this will uh, continue to be built, right? I think there may be some delays. Um, some will say this is smoke and mirrors. This is all a part of you know, um, a delay type tactic. But I think at some point, um, the, the protesters have to say, they are listening to us. We didn't get everything. What can we live with? What can we live without? I think the implicit bias training, the de-escalation is a win 
uh, for protesters. And I think as the facility is being built, if I was a protester, I would continue to press local government for more uh, provisions to be enacted um, so that by the time this edifice is built, um, it, it does feel like this is a city where it is an opening day for everyone. I wonder, uh, Eric, about an opportunity to reset on this. I think some of the protesters are uh, have absolutely no faith whatsoever in the city government or in city council or the mayor, uh, given the poor communication from the start on this. So I wonder if even these concessions will give some of the protesters second thoughts as they look at their next steps. Uh, I, I hope so. And I hope we can get back to really, you know, what is behind the training center and how we don't have one and we need one in it in Atlanta. And, you know, the role of government is to, you know, one of the primary roles is to protect its citizens. And as we look at the Atlanta Police Department and the struggles they've had with recruiting talent, uh, this new facility, uh, as planned, uh, is going to be, I think, an attractive uh, piece to why someone would want to, a police officer would want to come uh, to the city of Atlanta. And, you know, I think Atlanta, given, you know, the kind of city we are, we deserve a state-of-the-art police training center. And we we, we seem to have uh, gotten away from talking about the merits of this. Uh, and I hope we can get back to talking about it, because I do think at the end of the day, when this is built, it's going to be very good for the city. Melina, your thoughts on that? Well, I think that these um, last minute amendments mm. did answer some of the protests from the, the group that is opposed to the training facility. But I also believe that there's a lot of the fine print details that need to be worked out. For example, the business model for the police training center in some internal memos that, that various press groups have made um, come out had suggested that 43% of those trained would be from outside of Atlanta. There were also memos talking about rental rates for this facility. And so that's almost a direct contradiction to the city council having to approve use by outside groups. So I think the protesters have raised a lot of really, really good questions. And it's up to the council and the mayor to work with the police foundation and come up with a plan of operation, which answers the kinds of questions that they have raised. Uh, Greg, I do think we should point out, I'm glad Melita raised those uh, issues because in fact, I think one of the amendments council passed also says no rentals to outside groups, at least uh, it, 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 it's, I think it says something to that effect. And that was a concern of protesters. Uh, but Greg, what this next move, if, uh, as Melita points out, they're going to talk about this at a news conference uh, this morning at 10 o'clock, uh, assures that the controversy will uh, continue to be a big story uh, of all, by, from, by all of us who, who cover news. Yeah, and just to clarify, it, uh, the council said that outside groups won't be able to use the center without council approval. So there are still very special, ah. limited circumstances where it could be used. But yeah, no explosive, no helicopters. Um, two, uh, they're applying for two council members to be part of the police foundation's board. Um, you know, this is not over, but this is a huge victory for Mayor Dickens. Huge, um, because it showed that after two years of protests and national and local media attention, the tragic death of one of the demonstrators and you know, the <laughs> arrests 
of 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 multiple activists, including the recent arrest of a trio of of, of uh, people on uh, financial crime charges. Um, the the questions about fundraising and the, and, the, and the financing of this shows that after all of that, the vote essentially remained the same. It was ten to four back in twenty twenty one. It was eleven to four now. There was basically one council member who was up in the air, and he ended up voting for the project. Um, it doesn't mean it's over, and it, it certainly doesn't mean that that Mayor Dickens is in the clear on this because this is becoming quickly and already has become sort of the the, the centerpiece of his first term in office, one of them at least. Uh, and this was not what he expected, right? But this was not the biggest issue back in 21 when he was running for mayor, but it has certainly become, if if not the most important issue, one of the most important issues that he's tackling. Um, and look, protesters are, we, we just heard about the legal avenues. We've also heard uh, at, you know, we, the folks saying they're going to burn it down, right? We've heard all we've heard it run the gamut um, from violent means to legal means. And so Atlanta police officers and uh, the supporters of this project will have to be on alert. All right. Um, thank you all for that conversation. Melita, thank you for bringing that new information uh, to us on the show. Uh, Greg, let's talk about the state convention, which starts on Friday, GOP convention, which starts on Friday in Columbus. Um, and, and I'd like to start the conversation with a subject that you've been looking at closely. Um, we're going to see a group of the most conservative Georgia Republicans attempt a move in which they are going to try to stop people who they believe are not ideologically pure, and you should help us understand what ideological purity means in this case, from running as Republicans for office. Uh, the Georgia Republican Assembly, which is that real right-wing group, uh, is uh, r rallying, uh, I guess they're, they're well, let me, let me stop, because I may have that wrong. First of all, <laughs> start by telling us what exactly is going on when you've got a group of far-right Republicans who want to identify traitors to the Republican cause. Yeah, it, and that's the rub there, Bill, because what does ideologic purity mean? Well, in this instance, it means whatever the majority of the delegates of the Georgia Republican Party say, say it means, and that's the problem here. So right now, um, there this Georgia Republican Assembly and all their ultra-conservatives, um, far-right members, are gaining traction. They're winning delegate slots. They are uh, they're kind of squeezing out more mainstream voices. Um, and they're using this cloud. This is not a new push, but it has gained new traction because suddenly the GRA and these other groups that are aligned with them uh, and delegates that are aligned with them have more clout. Um, and so this is something that party leaders are taking very seriously. They're watching it very closely. They don't think it will pass this year, but it will become a perennial issue that they have to uh, ward against because there's huge ramifications. Under this rule, it says a majority of the delegates, there's about 1,500 or so delegates, a majority of the delegates can vote to disqualify anyone from running as a Republican. That can mean Governor Kemp. That can mean Secretary of State Raffensperger. That can mean a far-right you know, uh, extremist candidate. You know, That can mean anyone that they see they deem fit. And under this rule, it would be a blanket ban until the party votes to rescind it. Um, there's a lot of uh, different steps that lawmakers and others can take, uh, including basically passing legislation that 
that rejects, that blocks the state party from doing so. And even some supporters of this idea were, were bringing that up. Well, we know what's to stop Governor Kemp and others um, from completely neutering the power of the state GOP from taking such steps. Others were also saying, what's to stop the mainstream, you know, more uh, uh, mainline activist, establishment-friendly activists from taking control of the party and then blocking you know, the far right from running. So there's all sorts of different ramifications to this. It's it's another part of this ongoing battle over the fate of the Republican Party in Georgia um, that we're seeing play out uh, with Donald Trump, with his allies, with the election, tw the 2022 issues, and then this. And uh, to me, it all kind of falls under the same umbrella. So the Georgia Republican Assembly, I started to say, I wanted to make sure I had it right, and you've helped me with this, Greg. They are assailing the so-called paid political class, uh, which is opposed to this proposal. And, and so I, I, I assume, Greg, that right now, although the ramifications could apply to any Republicans down the road, this is the far right saying we want to determine the ideological purity of candidates or uh, before we allow them to appear on the ballot. So right now, it is a far-right attempt to stop, I guess, non-MAGA Republicans from gaining traction. Exactly. And they specifically mentioned Governor Kemp, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Um, I, I, I joined one of their phone calls the other night, and th those names came up. Um, but look, again, in three years, who's to stop uh, the more mainstream mm. party activists right. from doing the same thing to the ultra-conservatives? Who knows? Eric, the, I think Greg, at the end of his remarks, made the bigger point. This is another example of just how uh, toxically divided uh, the Republican Party in Georgia is. This is a party that for a very long time you were a major player in. You've been a mainstream Republican for your entire political career. And in many ways, the party seems to have sidelined you and others like you. Well, I, I think that this is a snapshot in time, uh, you know, having been involved for over 30 years, this has happened in the past. Some may recall the convention of 1988 when social conservatives came into the party as a result of Pat Robertson when he ran for president and tried to take over and move the, quote, establishment or more mainstream people aside. Uh, and you've seen things at state party conventions over the years. I remember when Johnny Isaacson and Saxby Chambliss were booed when there was an immigration debate when George W. Bush was president. So, I, I mean, I think first your listeners need to realize that the state Republican Party convention is not representative of all Republicans in the state of Georgia. It's just those individuals that put themselves up to become a delegate to the convention. And the Republican Assembly is a small minority. It's just a, it just happens to be a vocal minority. And right now, they probably have a little bit of a louder voice than they have in the past. But a lot of this is really determined by the leadership and the current leadership of the state Republican Party through his lot in with President Trump and with the election deniers. But he is not seeking re-election. So at the conclusion of this convention, uh, we're going to have a new leader. And whoever that new leader is, is going to have an opportunity to turn the page and bring people together. And, you know, this, this, the Republican Party does play, the state party plays an important role. People need to remember that it's the delegates to the national convention that actually nominate 
the president or the candidate for president of the of the United States. It's not the voters in the in the actual state. And so I think that, uh, you know, I think the party, as it has done in the past, will hopefully people will come together. I don't think we're going to need any see any draconian measures. I don't think this rule will pass. Hopefully, I don't think the legislature will take action. I just think that, you know, we need to take advantage of the fact that new leadership's getting elected and whoever the new chairman of the party is, is going to have a big uh, job on their hands to bring people together and, and turn the page. Kendra, what do you see as you watch all this unfold? Yeah, I think it's really interesting uh, to see a party that for so many years, so many decades, uh, tended to be a bit more united, a bit more unified to see this, this schism, especially, especially in the Bible Belt. But it's not surprising. It's not surprising when we look at everything that's been happening in terms of people wanting to take democracy or the lack thereof into their own hands. Um, Alex Johnson is an alumni of Oglethorpe University, right? So, so there's a part of me that's proud um, of this petrol <laughs> and the disruptive uh, nature of what he's doing, uh, right? Because that's what we teach our students uh, to do and our alum, you know, to again, um, challenge and question why. But, but I agree with what Eric said. I think this is a, 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 if you will, a drop in time. Um, right now, it's very loud. They have a lot of momentum and they're doing what, what anyone should do. When you have the media behind you, leverage that momentum for your outcomes. But I agree with what Greg said. I don't think that this is going to pass. And I think this whole notion of um, Republican in name only, wow, who would have ever thunk it that would get to this place in American politics? Yeah, Melita, before we take a break, I'll let you weigh in on this. I, I do want to point out, I understand that Democrats right now might be watching all this with a certain kind of, uh, you know, uh, joy that Republicans seem to be doing themselves so much damage right now. But the fact of the matter is the energy around the MAGA wing of the party um, is also something I think Democrats need to watch with concern if Donald Trump is the candidate for president there is still an enormous army set to vote for him down the road. That is very true. I mean, Democrats will watch the Republican convention while eating popcorn, but on both from in both parties, we should be reluctant to incorporate any process which circumvents the basics of democracy by placing decisions for the majority in the hands of a minority on either end of the political spectrum. I mean, democracy is messy at times, but it's certainly the best form of government ever invented. Well, Melita, that's a very optimistic note on which to end the first segment of Political Rewind. Let's get to a break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Melita Easters, Kendra King-Mammon, Eric Tannenblatt, and Greg Bluestein join me for uh, today's conversation. Uh, so, Greg, we now have uh, Chris Christie, 
in the Republican presidential field, Mike Pence, announces today. And of course, of course, the candidate that all Republicans across country have been waiting for, Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota, has decided to throw his hat in the ring as well. I think it's now up to 10 formal candidates. Um, and it, it's just it, all of this is what Republicans talked about before the process started. A big field is simply going to help Donald Trump, Greg. And they all know it. They all saw it happen in 2016. And this is a replay. Um, I don't know. I don't think that all 10 or plus 10 candidates will still be in the field when voting starts. Um, there's there's a lot of speculation and talk about Christie in particular, just being the guy who can take shots at Donald Trump in the debates and then get out um, if he's not gaining any traction on the polls. So we'll, we'll see if that comes to pass. But this is why, I mean, it's not a secret, right? Donald Trump is openly welcoming the more the merrier because it splits the uh, the non-Trump candidates. It makes it harder for DeSantis, the, the main non-Trump candidate right now at least, uh, to gain traction. It, it makes it harder for Nikki Haley and others to emerge because it divides media attention. And it's going to be real tough. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one reason why Donald Trump is still the front runner. Well, we can talk about uh, uh, Christie, perhaps Mike Pence, uh, even Doug Burgum in a few minutes. But but um, I want to take advantage of the fact that we have you on the show today, Eric Tannenblatt. As we mentioned on Political Rewind yesterday when Nikki Haley's name came up, um, you have been a big advocate for her uh, here in Georgia. And uh, she was in town on Monday for a fundraiser. Um, let me just ask you about the reception that Nikki Haley got in town on Monday. What sorts of Republicans were at that event and how did it go? Well, uh, first of all, the event Monday was uh, very successful and it was a mix of, you know, political business community leaders. She's, she's popular, uh, across a good cross section, uh, of folks in the state. I mean, people know her. Uh, first of all, because she was the governor of a neighboring state. She campaigned during the last two election cycles for Republicans that were running for office, including Governor Kemp. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think she uh, has a great track record, both as governor and uh, as UN ambassador. Uh, and I think people see that, uh, you know, she's the the, the real deal and, and actually brings both executive experience, foreign policy experience. Um, and she's also someone that's very relatable. That's probably the biggest thing that I would, the biggest takeaway. You know, she was here in March for a fundraising event, and there were a lot of people at that event that had not uh, ever had a chance to meet her before. Many of those people at that first event ended up being a host for the second event because they just connected with her and uh, really didn't realize how relatable she was. So I think the more people get to know her and see her, the, the thing that I would also point out is, um, you know, she's spending a lot of time, as she should, in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. And to Greg's point, I think he's absolutely right. I think when voting starts, you're not going to have all of these candidates. And, and I think that a lot's going to happen between now and January <clears throat> Uh, as it relates to President Trump, too. We don't know what's going to happen with his own, you know, legal troubles. Uh, and so far, we have seen that, you know, Governor DeSantis, you know, he hit his high watermark after his reelection and it keeps coming down. So 
I think, you know, once the debates start in uh, in August and you get to compare all the candidates together, you know, there was a uh, comment uh, Nikki reminded uh, folks of on Monday that in um, the 2016 election at this time, Ted Cruz was at 4% in Iowa. And then in December, he got to 10% and then he ended up winning the Iowa caucus. So I think that just says to you that, you know, don't look at poll numbers right now. And, you know, these candidates are going to go out there and work and see if they connect with people. And, you know, I, I'm obviously not the most objective, but I think Nikki's very relatable. And I think the more people get to know her, the more they're going to like her. Melita, she's not polling well. Uh, Eric says, don't pay attention. I get that. But she's really very low in the polls. Um, but, but, you know, but the fact of the matter is, she's the kind of Republican who could pose a bigger threat to Joe Biden down the road because of uh, her somewhat more moderate position. Let me, Melita, read uh, from the New York Times story on her town hall with CNN Sunday night and then ask you to, to respond to it. Um, she, Ms. Haley uh, was well-versed on policy issues, consistently upbeat and evenly tempered. Although she drew contrast with Mr. Trump, she dodged opportunities to make him or even President Biden into a political punching bag. At the end of the night, an audience member praised her demeanor as a, quote, breath of fresh air, earning applause from the House full of Iowa Republicans. But that also meant that there were few shootout-the-light moments that could win Ms. Haley headlines and a new look from primary uh, voters. So talk about Nikki Haley as one of those. She's not really a moderate. I mean, she has taken a lot of very conservative positions, but she does have, as Eric says, a disposition that might make her somewhat more appealing uh, in a in a if she were to get to a contest with Joe Biden, she definitely has a much more appealing persona than Donald Trump or even Chris Christie, who came out really swinging on Tuesday evening in the way he criticized Trump and Jared Kushner and Ivanka. But her policies are hardline conservative. And there are many parts of her policies which many moderates would not be able to accept. I think the thing that Democrats need to be a little more concerned about is the success of her $11 million in the um, Q1 of, of fundraising, which Eric obviously um, helped contribute to with his efforts here in Georgia. So she's ahead of the other um, Republican wannabe nominees with her fundraising. And if that continues, certainly fundraising can make up for um, many other um, qualities on the campaign trail. Uh, Kendra, it's interesting that in the town meeting, she was willing to touch the third rail. She repeated her position, this is from the Times report, that in order to save Social Security and Medicare, it would be necessary to raise the retirement age for young workers and to limit benefits for the wealthy. Man, that uh, is a brave uh, a stance to take uh, as you're running for president of the United States, but perhaps a very realistic one. Yeah, I think what makes Nikki um, so, as, as uh, Eric said, um, you know, relatable is that she's also honest. And I think in a day and age where it's hard to pinpoint where politicians stand, 
Um, she's made it crystal clear. These are my beliefs. These are my ideologies. And these are the things that I'm, I'm not afraid to speak out on. And so I, I do think that she has um, the potential to be a sleeper candidate. Um, not only because of where she stands in the Republican Party, but I think conservative Democrats who may be tired of the last four years could lean potentially. Um, let's not forget she has that um, that that woman factor, and there are going to be a lot of women voters in this upcoming election. So I, I think that. Um, again, while she's raising lots and lots of money, we cannot fall asleep on that because that that's saying this, people are putting uh, their money where they believe their their beliefs are. So I, I was actually impressed that she talked about Social Security um, because the reality is we're running out of resources, right? And so someone's got to uh, be, um, if you will, courageous enough to have these conversations. Now, will it lead to votes? We'll have to see. I think uh, to what everyone said, August is going to be pivotal, um, and I want to stay tuned to see um, how she fares. Um, Greg, obviously, we're going to talk about um, uh, many of the Republican candidates in the weeks ahead. We focus on Nikki Haley today because Eric is with us and is a big supporter of hers. But um, let's talk more generally about the uh, uh, rules that the Republican National Committee has now put in place for debating who gets to be on the debate stage, because that's the goal right now for each of these candidates as they announce they need to be on the debate stage in August. And without going into all of the rules, it strikes me one of the most important and interesting ones is that uh, the RNC says, unless you pledge to support the eventual nominee of the party, you will not be given a position on the debate stage. Chris Christie's already said he's not going to support Donald Trump. Donald Trump is unlikely to commit to supporting someone other than himself. It's really going to be interesting to see how that plays out and what it does for the opportunities of some of these candidates. You're exactly right. I mean, remember, Donald Trump famously did not pledge to to support the eventual Republican nominee in 2015. It was him. So he didn't have to worry about that. But there are valid, very valid concerns that even if Donald Trump doesn't win the nomination, he goes and starts a third party. So that's why that's that is why um, one of the reasons why they're pushing this rule change. There's another important one, too. Candidates will be required to have at least 40,000 donors to face off in August. This is why you're yep. going to suddenly get a lot of requests for a dollar or two dollars or three dollars from some of these very long shot candidates. There's going to be a big debate stage. There's going to be a smaller debate stage um, in Milwaukee. Uh, and this will set the tone for a lot of the other debates to come, whether they're sponsored by the RNC or, or, or other organizations. All right, we're going to watch how that uh, uh, plays out in the weeks ahead. Um, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, I, I want to talk about a national conference that's beginning today in Atlanta with a number of significant black leaders. And the issue that they're going to be talking about over the next couple of days is reparations, one of the most controversial but compelling issues that um, African-Americans uh, have talked about for some time now and is getting a lot more attention uh, in the uh, past year or so. We'll be right back with that conversation and more.
Kendra King Maman, an organization called Decolonizing Wealth Project, is going to bring a conference that I think starts later today that they call the Alight Align Arise Advancing the Movement for Repair Conference. Um, And some extraordinarily um, well-known thinkers um, in Black America will be part of the conversation, including Nicole Hannah Jones, who, of course, uh, was the author of the 1619 Project, which um, stirred up an enormous amount of controversy, but also laid out in very clear terms the history of Black Americans from slavery forward. And one of the big issues, of course, is looking at reparations, Kendra. Um, let's talk, give us a sense, if you would, of what are we talking about when we talk about reparations for Black Americans? Absolutely. But Bill, I've got to be honest, I thought you were going to start with Eric in this section uh, to give me a moment. No, I'm teasing. I'm joking, y'all. Uh, <laughs> just, just a little <laughs> It's with me. Let's have some fun. (laughs) Again, and I write about this in my book, African American Politics. Um, When we talk about reparations, we're talking about injustices that have been uh, 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 committed against African Americans from prior to slavery. We're talking about when African Americans first came from Africa as indentured servants, right? And then we went into the horrific system of slavery up into everything that we know is happening even to this day, uh, gentrification, which is removing those who are uh, in some instances below the poverty line, but live closer into the city, displacing them, what have you. I, I think that this, confer- this con- conference that's happening and the conversation around reparations that's been actually going on for 50 plus years is needed. Um, it is relevant. It is real. As an African-American woman, um, I can tell you that even in 2023, there are things uh, that my education and my quote unquote privilege do not shield me from. Um, and so we have to have this conversation. Um, I, I think this and this is where we get uh, into some of the, the trickiness of this. When you look at what just happened in California and the decision to pay out, um, My big pause on this is that if you look at the numbers that uh, the council came up with, the state of California will go bankrupt. And so my fear about having these conversations is that they become symbolic conversations that have no political, economic, social, cultural substance. Mm. There's no teeth in them. So for me, for Atlanta in particular, I know they have a commission. If we're going to have these conversations, I think we have to be very measured. We have to be very realistic. And we also have to provide tangible outputs so that we're just not having a conversation that goes on for another 20 to 50 years. Yeah, California, there's a task force that uh, was asked to uh, look at uh, paying uh, uh, Black uh, Californians uh, for years of slavery and also discrimination in other areas. Um, They were talking about, they came up with a plan that would give that would pay back uh, black Californians for healthcare disparities, $13,500 for each year of residency, for instance, um, payments of $148,000 uh, for housing discrimination. I mean, they came up with a plan that would cost billions of dollars, and of course, the California Assembly would have to approve it. But let me ask you one quick question before I bring in the rest of the panel on this, Kendra. When we talk about reparations, is is it specifically money that we're talking about, or is it other 
uh, ways in which uh, there can be an amelioration of the discrimination that has held back black Americans from accumulating family wealth? Absolutely. Great question, Bill. And I, I think it depends on who you talk to. Some people believe that it is money. It is a financial um, readjustment to all the years of inequality. But for others, they say, hey, it can be uh, free access to education, right? It could be um, housing abatements, tax abatements, things of that nature. Um, and so, again, I think that this conference that's kicking off today is going to shed light on on avenues of, of if you will, um, apology even, written apology, verbal apology, right, that could be done. But I think the majority of people are looking um, to what happened, I think, in the late 1920s, early 1930s with the Asian American community where they were given financial reparations to right the wrongs. Um, Melita, it, it is my understanding that more than anything else, what this is all about is the ways in which uh, Black people in this country have been blocked from generating wealth that can be passed on to future generations. So that can be things like redlining in mortgages, where uh, black families had a harder time getting mortgages to own property, to own a house. It can be health issues uh, because of poorer health care that prevent people from having a job that in which they can start to accumulate uh, wealth. It can uh, be any number of other issues as well. And, and I think, I know there are many, many people who think the notion of paying for uh, past uh, 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 disgraceful behavior is simply wrong, but it's hard to overlook the fact that discrimination has made it harder for black people to, uh, to accumulate uh, wealth. That is very, very true. And I think you you look at just the small thing, which is a big thing for Black families. You look at the maternal mortality rate, which is so much larger for Black women than other women, even other women of color. And so there are many, many aspects to life in the United States that need to be evened out and improved for those who don't have the opportunity to better themselves. But at the same time we have these discussions, I think we also need to look at and address the tax inequities of the way people are taxed, because until the highest percentage of wealth um, individuals are taxed um, at a rate which is more equalized, we won't have the money to fix the system or to make reparations. I mean, just look at Elon Musk. His family fortune is built on the modern day equivalent of slave wages at Emerald Mines in Africa. So we have to ta correct the tax system both for individuals and corporations in this country which will help all of those at the lower end of the income scale, black, white, brown, Asian, everybody who is, is held down by the current system, which further creates greater income inequality. Greg? You know, Bill, this is not some esoteric debate that's happening in Washington. It's happening in, in Georgia, too. 
uh, Nakima Williams, the congresswoman from Atlanta, who is going to who is aiming to be in House leadership, is one of the most uh, vocal supporters of this. And I'm reminded of uh, an event that that way back in April of 2018 that Stacey Abrams attended when she was running for governor the first time. It was a it was a progressive event. It wasn't a campaign event, but it imagined attendees to to envision being in 2022, being last year with with Stacey Abrams in her first term as governor. And quote, we're celebrating Medicare for all and free college. And next on the agenda is reparations. Um, this is an issue that Stacey Abrams kind of tiptoed around back in 2018 and embraced last year's campaign. But as Eric will say, too, it is one of those issues that also energizes Republicans, conservatives, like few others. Because right after this this image of Stacey Abrams speaking at that conference way back in 2018 emerged, it immediately became uh, a top topic for Republicans is to warn that if Stacey Abrams is elected, she'll immediately pursue reparations. Reparations has become a bad word for many um, for, for many who are against it, for many Republicans, uh, it's, it's uniquely mobilizing. Eric, it is an issue that Republicans like to seize upon. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that, uh, you know, to your point earlier, Bill, it, it's, it's hard to overlook, you know, the, the issues. But I think you have to uh, engage in a dialogue. You know, one one of the things that I'm really proud of that uh, I played a small role in at our, our firm was uh, responsible for creating the Black Bank Foundation, uh, where you know there are a lot of Black-owned banks that aren't large enough to take on large projects, and so we pulled together a number of Black banks, created the Black Bank Fund. And a, a shout out to the Atlanta Hawks, the practice facility uh, that they opened up by Emory was financed with black bank funds. And I think, you know, you need to look at, um, you know, initiatives like that and talk about that. And, and I think that that helps people get a better um, understanding and appreciation for, for what we're talking about. But there, there needs to be a whole lot more dialogue, especially when you put a partisan lens on it. Um, Kendra, we're running out of time, but I, I, I do want to point out um, a, a book uh, written by Heather McGee, who uh, used to be the uh, head of Demos. Um, she wrote a book called The Sum of Us and was a guest on our show uh, several years ago. And one of the things that she points out in that book, which I think is a remarkable book, is that um, it, it, this isn't just about black people that when you continue to suppress the opportunities for black people to make strides in income and other things, you're hurting all of us. Her most uh, salient example isn't about reparations, it's about swimming pools. She talks about the fact that in the earlier days of the 20th century, many communities built community swimming pools they were incredibly proud of. But when desegregation came along, the white uh, community was so terribly upset about this possibility of swimming with black people, they paved them over, and then nobody got to swim in these pools. Um, I wish I had time uh, to give you, in fact, you have about 20 seconds to respond to that before we have to get out of here. Yeah, again, we, we are Americans, we are democracy, and I think when you, when you engage in injustice for one, it ultimately is injustice for all. All right. 
Kendra King uh, Mammon, Melita Easters, Eric Tanneblack, Greg Bluestein. I know I throw threw a lot at you, but thank you so much for a terrific conversation. We're back with another show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care, stay healthy, and please be good to one another. Bye, everybody. <laughs>